If you could ask God one question, what would it be? Why are there mosquitoes? That's not a question, that's a statement. Why is there sin? That's it? That's what we got? That's okay. Y'all are missing a great opportunity, man. If you could ask God something, you better come up with a good question. I read a study this week uh, that said if people were given the chance to ask God one question, it boiled down to the, the vast majority of uh, those questions boiled down uh, to the problem of evil and suffering. If God is all-powerful and all-loving, why does he allow evil and suffering? Uh, I think that's one of those questions that every one of us at some point um, have, 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 have questions, have struggled with. Uh, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, yet suffering and evil exists, it seems as though if he's all-loving and all-powerful, he would love us enough to do something about it. And if he could, he would. So the fact that there's evil and suffering either must not be all loving, must be disengaged, or not all powerful. Uh, that is a question that has um, garnered a lot of attention and a, and, a, and a lot of energy and people trying to understand that. Uh, and we will see the disciples wrestle with that question today in John chapter 9. If you have a Bible and brought one with you, I'd encourage you to find John chapter 9. Go to the middle of the Bible, take a right. It's the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Chapter 9 comes right after chapter 8, right before chapter 10. So that's as much as I can help you find it. We're coming out, in chapter 9, we're coming out of the end of chapter 8 that we looked at last week at Easter, which was a really odd section to look at as far as Easter is concerned. But there was a lot of truth in it that was pertinent to us and pertinent to the Easter story uh, and, the, and, and, and the fact of the resurrection uh, and what Jesus did and accomplished uh, in his life and his resurrection, what that means for us. It was, it, was, it was an interesting study to go through. At the end of that now, uh, there, there's been quite a commotion between Jesus and a lot of the religious leaders and teachers of the law, the uh, the muckety-mucks of, of, of the religious culture at that time uh, with Judaism. And, and, and they've been going back and forth, Jesus and these boys. They've been going back and forth. Uh, a lot of things were said. Um, their tempers were flying. Jesus was speaking truth. Um, and before we get into chapter 9, I just want to wrap up chapter 8 just a little bit. Uh, chapter 8, verse 59, and in the very first part, of chapter 9, verse 1. The Bible says this, at this, all this commotion, all this, all this going back and forth about who Jesus claims to be, who he says they are, uh, where they come from, where they say Jesus comes from, this I mean, it was really, really, really intense. And the, the, the religious fervor uh, in the Middle East, and certainly at this time, uh, in the first century, surround Judaism and 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 the like. I mean, it was it was just volatile, and because of all of this that was going on at this, they picked up stones uh, to stone Jesus. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. And then verse one says, as he went along, uh, he saw a man blind from birth. Uh, here, here's what I want to st stick on just real quick. There, there was there was so much. Um, anger towards Jesus by the religious people. I mean, they were saying horrific things and not just saying things. They were physically going to try to kill him. And the thing I love about Jesus, he has such a calm presence with those who misjudge, who insult, and who slander him. He has such a calm presence. He doesn't respond in kind. He doesn't return their hatred with hatred, anger, vitriol. He doesn't, 
He doesn't match their, I mean, he could have got into it with them. Oh yeah, well you say, well, what about? He has such a calm presence with those who misjudged him, insulted him, and slandered him. Do you understand? How different? Huh? He has no regard for the enemies who hated him. He just doesn't get worked up about it. You know why? Because he had nothing to prove and no one to impress. About 40 of us men in this church and a couple who live uh, in other places went through a study these past six weeks. Uh, and I invited you all to be a part of it, and 40 of you took, took me up on it. And, and through this study, looking at what significance is, one of the things that we walked away with was a better understanding of the fact that we got nothing to prove and no one to impress. Now, it's true for women as well, but it's especially true for men. We are conditioned our entire lives to prove ourselves and to be impressive. We're conditioned our entire lives to prove who we are, to prove our worth, to prove our value, to prove our success. We're conditioned our entire lives to be impressive by either our bank account, what we drive, how we look, but something to... And there is so much freedom found in a man's life when he realized, I got nothing to prove and no one to impress. And whenever I look at Christ in the scriptures, I see him in his humanity. He lived. He had nothing to prove and no one to impress. Do you know what kind of freedom is found when a man finally realizes he's got nothing to prove to anybody and no one to impress? The defenses come down. The offenses come down. The security that's birthed in a heart that understands they got nothing to do with no one. And some say, well, but, but, but except for God. I mean, you would want to impress and, you know, are you kidding? Do, do, are you so arrogant to think you can impress God? You, 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 you're so arrogant you think you can prove something? The only thing we can prove to God is that we're sinners. Matter of fact, the inverse is true. God has been the one who has proven himself to us in the fact of this, that while we're still sinners, God died for, or Jesus died for us. He's done all the proving. He's done all the impressing. And when I'm accepted by him, I got nothing to prove and no one to impress. So whatever you may say about me, whatever you might do to me, what do I mean? Got nothing to prove, no one to impress. I'm not. And I see that over and over and over in Scripture and with Jesus. He's got nothing to prove and no one to impress. And so when, they, when, 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 when all these people get so worked up about him, the Bible says he just, he just when it says he slipped away, it doesn't mean like he hid himself because he was afraid or anything like that. He just, there was so much fervor and so much activity going on at the end of chapter eight. So many people, literally what this is, he just walked right through the middle of the crowd. He's like, hey, y'all know where I am. I'm not hiding from you. He just walked right down the middle of them. He wasn't worried about them. He wasn't concerned about what they were saying or doing. Why? Because he had nothing to prove and no one to impress. And it says, as he went along, he just went about his life and what God put him on earth to do. I love that about God. I love that about Jesus. And so verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, as he went along, he saw a, a, a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And I understand that question. How long had this guy been blind? Since birth. And they asked the question, who sinned? 
So if this guy sinned, he was blind from birth, when did that sin happen? After his birth or before his birth? They're asking him. Now, when he was in the womb, what did he do? Can you imagine? And unfortunately, some of them have that theology. That they believe that, that, that an infant in the womb could sin. It's just ridiculous. Now, they would go back to the Old Testament when Jacob and Esau were in the womb wrestling with each other and say that, you know, in the womb, one of them triggered the other one and so, so sinned. But, but they're asking the question, who sinned? This question. See, they had the understanding that whenever there was suffering, it's because of sin. That was their understanding. It's the question that we call theodicy. It's the question I asked you when we started. If God is all-loving and all-powerful, why does he allow evil and pain and suffering to exist? It's, it's the it's theod is the theodicy question. It's a question people have been asking since the beginning of time. Why, God? You know, it's interesting to me. They see this man who's been blind from birth, and they turn the question to hypothesis. Here's what I know. Whenever we can't help someone or don't want to help someone, we talk about why they are the way they are. When I see someone in need and I can't help them, I talk about them. Or when I see someone in need and I don't want to help them, I talk about them. Right? Let me give you an example. Homelessness. We don't mind at all talking about why people are homeless. Why do we talk about why? Because either we can't help or we don't want to help. And it's exactly what they do. See, what's happened is their doctrine has overridden their compassion. And they'd rather talk about the man than have compassion on him. They knew he was blind from birth. They, they had no interest in helping this man. They just wanted to talk about why he is the way he is. And I love how Jesus handles this whole thing. Jesus says in verse 3, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, now, I think we got to be really careful uh, when you read Jesus' response because we're in danger of some misunderstanding. Now, initially when I read that, my mind goes to Genesis 50, verse 20. And in Genesis 50, and verse 20, this is the, the culmination of the story of, the, of, of Joseph's life. And Joseph was, was a young one of a very large family. And and they did not have a he didn't have a good relationship with his with his parents nor his nor his his brothers, uh, his, um, his 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 parents were overindulgent, they were far too permissive, his brothers hated him, he was sold into slavery, he was falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit, he was thrown in jail, and and, and God was with him this whole time and finally rose him to the second in power of the greatest nation on the earth at the time, the nation of Egypt. And he raises to prominence, and all of a sudden, he, God orchestrates this opportunity for his brothers to come and stand before him, not realizing it's him, because they think he's dead, or just have, have, have been erased from the pages of history. And all of a sudden, Joseph sees his brothers there, and he's got his opportunity for revenge, for recompense, for something. And what he says to them is, it's this right here. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And when I first read of this man born blind and I read Jesus' response, that's, that's where my head goes first. 
that, that what, it, what you experience right now might be intended for your harm, but God has intended it for good. But we have to be very careful because the danger and misunderstanding is that God caused, God made a baby to be born blind so that God could show off later. That is a bad theological stance. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that God made this baby blind so he could have a chance to show off later in this, in, in this man's life. That's not what he's saying is this. He's saying that there are horrible things that happen in this world. And Jesus warned his disciples about this. He said, he said in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I've overcome it. And so what Jesus is saying here is that there are some terrible things that happen in this world. And there's some evil and there's some suffering that happened. But I'm going to override tragedy in this life so that you will know my power and so that you will worship me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying God did it so God could show off. He's saying there are horrible things that happen. And in this instance, I'm going to override that tragedy so you will understand who I am and worship me. Here's what every Christ-following sufferer, okay, every Christ-following sufferer has got to know that though they suffer blindly now, with little knowledge of how the suffering is advancing the kingdom, one day they will know how their suffering has advanced God's kingdom. But, but, but right now, for the Christ-follower who suffers, there is little knowledge of how this is advancing God's kingdom and purpose. One day they will know. But for a time, they might have to suffer blindly. You follow me? I, I, I doubt, I'm going to just give you a spoiler alert, okay? This guy gets healed. So a spoiler alert. And I doubt this guy's in heaven right now going, you know what? Appreciate what you did, but dadgummit God, I wish you would have done it sooner. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying that was awesome. You know how many millions upon millions of people are telling my story? Do you see what I'm saying? Though in the moment he suffered blindly because he didn't know how that story was going to advance the kingdom. Later he found out and every Christ follower who currently suffers has to suffer blindly, not knowing right now how it advances the kingdom, but knowing that it does. So let me ask two really, really, really difficult questions. Would you embrace suffering in your life if you knew it would bring you closer to God? Careful with that answer. Because every one of us has suffered. And it hasn't necessarily brought us immediately to God. There's been questions and grief and concern and worry and stress. Careful. Let me ask you another tough question. Would you embrace suffering if you know it would bring someone else closer to God? When we go through times like this, it's important to think not in terms of it happened to, but in terms of it happened for. Because here's the thing, when we think in terms of this happened too, we want answers and reasons why. Do you understand? And so rather than thinking this happened too, biblical, biblical worldview says it happened for. For what? For we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. So rather than living in the world of suffering and, and difficulty, and we asking it thinking in terms of it happened to, we have to change to a biblical perspective of thinking it happened for. And we will know the for later. See, this, this book right here, 
Did you know that this book is not about us? This book is about him. It's not about us. And the problem is we read this as if it's about us. And that's really dangerous. Because the more I think this is a book about me and my life and my future, when stuff happens, I want to know why. Do you understand? Why that happened to me? Because about why that happened to me? Because about why that happened to me? Because because this is a story about me and my future. And if it's a story about me and my future, I want to know why it happened too. And God says it's not about you. It's about me and my kingdom. And so things don't happen to, things happen for. Do you understand the difference? We okay? Can I push? I, I love what, what, what Jesus says here in verse 4. Uh, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that even Jesus is on a timetable. Jesus is saying that the, my time here is limited. And when I got the opportunity to do something, I'm going to take the opportunity and do it. I'm not going to wait. Because night's coming when I can't do this work anymore. So while I'm here and while I see the need, I'm going to jump, he's saying. There was such urgency in Jesus' life, and I just wonder how many times when we have the opportunity, we wait and we wait and we wait. Better time, better situation, better scenario, better knowledge, better resources. And Jesus says, look, it's daytime now. Get busy. There's going to come a time when you can't. So whatever kingdom stuff you can do in earth right now with your life, right now, get busy and get it done. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in a man's eyes. That is nasty. When, when I'm reading this, you know where my mind goes? My mind goes back to Genesis. Because when God made man, how did he do it? With the what? With the dust of the earth and made clay. And created life where life didn't exist. Jesus is going back to Genesis. Because what's he doing? He's creating sight where sight didn't exist. This is the, the first time, this is the only this is the time. Every time up to there, Jesus. This is the only time in the Bible when Jesus healed a congenitive disease. Every other healing was the restoration of what had been lost or stolen. It was the restoration of what was sick. This is the only time when Jesus says, I'm not restoring anything. I'm creating brand new stuff. Jesus didn't restore the man's sight. He created sight where sight had never existed before. So he goes back typology, he goes back to Genesis and takes the dust of the earth and creates life where life hadn't ever existed before. Do you understand? This is a big deal because this is not restoration. This is creation. And this is what the Spirit of God does. Creates life. I love the fact that Jesus constantly changes the process how he heals. Like he had healed blind people before. One time he just spoke to someone and a guy got healed. Another time he like he put a, actually had to touch him, put his hands on him. And this time he's all. <laughs> I love the fact that he's always changes his methods. You know why he always changes his methods? So we won't fall in love with the process. Because if he didn't change his message, we would honor the process rather than the person. And so Jesus says, I don't, want you, I don't want you to formalize anything. I want you to be attached to me. So I'm not going to do it the same every time. So you don't fall in love with the process. So you don't think these are three easy steps to get God to move in your life. So you don't think all you have to do is X, Y, and Z, and God will do something. You need to attach to me, not a process. He wants us to understand that the power of God is in the God, uh, the God who has power. It's interesting that 
Do you know using spit medicinally was not odd in the ancient world? Do you know this is what they did oftentimes? This is just nasty. But, but, but like they believe that spit of a distinguished person was thought to have curative qualities. And the saliva of a righteous man who was fasting was especially useful in eye problems. That was their medical understanding. And I love the fact that Jesus goes with what they understood. On March 19th, I was at church and I had these little bumps on my head. And Heather said, hey, I think you have shingles. And I'm like, you're crazy. Um, and March 20th, I went to the doctor. Uh, and he said, you have a very severe case of shingles. And it, it, shingles attacks your, ner- your nerve clusters. And it attacked the optic nerve cluster that was located here in my head first. Uh, and I saw the doctor and he said, it is very severe. You need to immediately get to an eye doctor because it's in your optic nerve. If it goes into your eye, you will lose your eye. You'll be blind. And so I went to the doctor, the eye doctor, uh, and he said, right now it's not in your optic nerve. He said, but this is a very severe case. Uh, And so we'll just watch it and see. Two days later, I had to go back because my eye was completely swollen shut and I was blind. Uh, And he said, oh, this is going to be interesting. I don't know how this is going to pan out. Uh, And so... um, and, and so as it just took over my head and my eye, like I would just encourage you, don't get shingles. <laughs> um, and the doctor said, yeah, we don't know how this is going to pan out. We're going to do what we know to do, but we, have, we don't know. This, is, this isn't good. Uh, and I was blind uh, in my eye for two plus days, not knowing. Can you imagine what it would have been like if you said, let me see your eye? (laughs) Guys, just like, that would have been terrible. And even one eye would be like, I'm going to knock you out, mother. You know? It, uh, you know, I figured, yeah, so I lose my right eye. It's not my shooting eye, so that's good. And I, th- I thought, you know, the Apostle Paul, he was almost blind in both eyes. And he, like, he went around the world and I could do the ranchos with one. <laughs> it, it, ju- it just seems that like the spit in the eye thing, it was just, in, in, it, it seems if you think about it, I, I can't imagine if the doctor would have spit in my eye thinking that would help. I it just sounds offensive inadequate and harmful, right? It's just offensive. And as I look at how Jesus handled this, I think, you know what? This is so much a picture of the gospel. Because at the outset, the gospel is offensive. Though it will heal, at the outset, it's offensive. 1 Corinthians 1 says, For since the wisdom of God In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. There's there's just an offense to man's pride and man's own wisdom in the gospel. It, it, It just seems to spit in someone's eye for medicinal purposes, it just seems completely inadequate. And so does the gospel seem, because most often, even people in church want the government, want the structures to do something to help heal our ills. Let me just ask you this. What in the world has been more effective in healing the ills of humanity than the gospel lived rightly? To spit in someone's eyes for healing seems offensive, it seems inadequate, and it just seems you make mud and put it in an eyeball. That just seems harmful. But this is the gospel. 
Initially, it feels offensive and it seems inadequate. We got to add something to it for the benefit of humanity. And at the end of the day, here's what happens. The gospel feels harmful because the gospel says grace and grace alone. And religious people will say, you got to be very careful. Once you take the rules off and once you take the brakes off, all you do is in graces give a license to sin. And I disagree 100%. Grace is not harmful. It does not lead to more sin. Grace only leads to more gratefulness. And what I see here is a picture of the gospel. That it may feel offensive, inadequate, and harmful on the front end, but it is the only thing that creates life. Notice verse 7. Jesus says, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. It means sent because he's sending him. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I love the fact that Jesus took the initiative in this guy's life. Did, did this guy ever ask for help from Jesus? Huh? No. He, this guy never asked Jesus. This guy doesn't even know Jesus. And Jesus takes the initiative with him. He sees this blind guy. He says, I'm the light of the world. He spits on the ground, makes mud, and then says, go wash. I, 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 this guy didn't even know that Jesus was around. He's blind. Jesus takes the initiative with him. And then Jesus, see, this is, what Jesus, this is what's great about Jesus. Jesus created the need for him to obey because who wants to walk around with spit and mud in your eye? So Jesus created this need that made the guy be obedient. And listen, this is what Jesus does in our lives oftentimes. He creates, he allows, he pushes a need to get us to the point where it's so bad, I would rather not walk around with mud and spit in my eye, and so I will obey what you say to do. You understand? And that's what he's doing in some of your lives. He's allowing it to get so uncomfortable and so brutal and so nasty that you have no other choice but to bend your knee in obedience and say, okay, okay, I don't want mud and spit in my eye. I will do what you say. So it's about time you start doing it. You follow me? I love the fact this guy went and washed. He obeyed without being given a promise of the effect. Jesus never said, if you believe, I'm going to heal you. He didn't say, if you obey, I'm going to heal you. He said, I'm going to put mud. He didn't say, I'm going to put mud on your eye. You're going to go wash and you're going to say, he had no promise of the outcome of what Jesus was doing. He just had the need and the command and then there was obedience. And so many times we want to know, God, you tell me why you say to do what you say to do. And if you prove yourself to me, I'll obey. This guy obeyed, given no promise whatsoever. Obedience always brings blessing. Even if you don't understand why Jesus says to do it. You understand? The Bible says he came back seen. I, I love the fact um, that he obeyed without being given a promise and he came back seen. Never before in all of Scripture had anything like this happened. If you go in, in chapter 9, you go to verse 32, it says, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. This was brand new what Jesus was doing. He was creating something out of nothing. There wasn't restoration of what was lost. There was a creation of what had never been. And this is the work of God. Pick up the pace here a little bit. His neighbors of the blind man, of those who had uh, formerly seen him begging, they said, isn't this, the, isn't this the guy that you sit and beg on Blackstone? Isn't this him? Some claim that he was. Others said, no, it just looks like him. Isn't it terrible that they see the same guy year after year after year and turned a blind eye to a blind guy? They don't even know it's him who can see. 
He insisted, no, no, it's, it's, it's me. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus, he didn't even know who Jesus was. The guy they called Jesus, he made some mud. They didn't, he, he didn't know how he made the mud. You know what I'm saying? They're like, don't, don't tell him. Just let him think he had a water jug and like, I bet this guy never knew until he got to heaven. He's like, oh, that's how you did it. Ah. He told me to go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. But where is this man? I don't know. This guy had no relationship with Christ whatsoever. This man didn't know anything about, didn't know where Jesus was from, didn't know where he was going, didn't know, all he knew was his name, didn't know his claims, didn't know he had just said, I'm the light of the world. He didn't know any of that. And I love the fact that God chooses to intervene in a life who doesn't know him. One reason I think God does that is to drive home the fact that when God chooses to intervene, it's not because of our righteousness. It's not because we've done everything right. It's not because we got our ducks in a row. It's not because we have manipulated his. It's not because we deserve him to act. I think he acts in this guy's life to drive home the preeminence of grace and the mercy of God. God's work in your life will not be because you deserve it because of your righteousness. God's work in your life will be simply so that he gets glory. That he looks so good that he would do something for someone so bad. Do you notice the question they asked, verse 10? How were your eyes opened? Five different times they asked the wrong question. In verses 10, 15, 16, 19, and 26, they asked the wrong question, how, 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 how? That's always the wrong question. God, how are you going to intervene? God, how are you going to rescue? God, how are you going to provide? God, how are you going to step up? God, how? That's the wrong question. The right question is who? See, once you know the who, you'll understand the how. And because we think this is about us, we want to know the how. And God says, it's not about you, it's about me. So get to know the who here. And once you know the who, then you'll start to understand my how. You follow? Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind, or the man who, who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened a man's eyes was a Sabbath. And therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man isn't from God, he doesn't keep the Sabbath. These guys are so dumb. Seven times in the Gospels, Jesus purposefully heals on the Sabbath. Seven times on purpose. And I think he does it just because he wants to poke the bear. He wants to challenge bad theology because the law was to keep the Sabbath. That was the law. Now, they had, they had manipulated that and morphed that to such a degree. Now, let me tell you what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is stopping and looking backward with thanksgiving rather than looking forward in preparation. That's what the Sabbath is. The Sabbath is a day during the week that you stop. You stop producing, you stop planning, you stop working, you stop everything, and you look backwards with thanksgiving. God, thank you that you have provided, that you've prepared, that you've already planned out, and you stop planning for the future. You stop making your lists, you stop playing catch-up, you stop saying, well, I didn't get this done at work, so I gotta make it up now. You stop all of that, because that's all about the future. They had so manipulated the command of God for the Sabbath that on their law, on their books was a law. It wasn't in Scripture, but it was in the interpretation of, of the law that it was illegal to set a broken bone on the Sabbath unless it was a life-threatening break. Otherwise, you had to wait an entire day to set a broken bone. 
It was legal to spit on the Sabbath, but if that spit, you mixed it with dirt, now you've made mud that could be used in construction, and that was illegal. They're completely out of control. See, what had happened, their style of worship had prevented their compassion. And we got to be real careful not to use the word of God to unlove people God loves. I love, I love, I love his witness. They, they turned again to the blind man. What do you have to say about him? It was your eyes that were open. The man replied, he's a prophet. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. The one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. I, I love his response. This is a great witness to your huddle. I'm gonna give you a great witness to your huddle. Here it is. I know me, I met him, I changed. That's it. I can't explain any of this whole theodicy question, the problem of good and evil, problem of pain. Can't explain it. All I know is I know me, I met him, I changed. Who's gonna argue with you? And I love his sarcasm. Then they ask again, well, what did he do? How did he open your eyes? And the guy answered, I've told you already. You didn't listen in. You want me here to say it again? What, do you want to become his disciple too? I love his sarcasm. This guy's got some, like, he's not going to be pushed around. And so let, let, me, let me finally draw this to a conclusion. There's a lot here. So this guy gets kicked out of the synagogue, and that was a big deal back then. If you were excommunicated, like you couldn't do business anymore, you couldn't buy, sell, trade. You're cut off from your family, from your loved ones. I mean, this was, a, this was a bad deal. And so Jesus heard that he had been thrown out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you've now seen him. In fact, he's the one who's speaking with you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. When Jesus asked him, do you believe the Son of, in the Son of Man? It was a call to commitment. It was saying, you decide right now. Jesus saying, I am demanding from you a response to what you've, the blessing you received and to the opposition you face. Are you going to commit to me? I demand a response of what Jesus is saying. I want you to notice the growth in this man's life. In verse 1, he just knew Jesus was some man. By verse 17, he was convinced he was a prophet. By verse 27, he said, I am now his disciple. In verse 33, he came to realize that he was from God. In verse 35, 36, 37, 38, he realized he was the son of God. And in verse 38, he says, now I trust you and I worship you. Look at that growth. It doesn't have to take years, friends. You know that you have encountered God when it results in you worshiping him. And let me tell you this. Once you've found the favor of God, there's no fear in being out of favor with others. Why? Because you've got nothing to prove and no one to impress. This story in John 9 is really the story of how Jesus heals souls. See, he starts with the spiritually blind who aren't even aware of him. And that's what the Bible says. That God pursues us, we don't pursue him. He's constantly drawing people to himself by his loving kindness. And this, Jesus takes the initiative. This guy didn't ask anything. Jesus just saw. He said, I want to come to you, which is what Jesus did on the cross, in the incarnation of the cross. He said, I'm coming to you. I'm taking the initiative. The Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the initiative. And then Jesus does the work of creation, not restoration, where he creates brand new life in what was once dead. Behold, you who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's, a, it's not a restoration of what has been lost. It's a new creation of life itself. 
And then Jesus gives us work to do and obedience to follow. Whether we understand it or not, he says, look, this will be for your benefit. And if, if you don't understand it, I need you to obey me right now. And we go through this process of being cleaned and, and being washed by the water with the word, the Bible says. And the result of that is that we're changed and we're not the same anymore. New life has come. And in that newness of life, people sometimes don't recognize who we are. They knew who we were in our suffering, but they don't know who we are now in our life. And as we talk about this Jesus to our huddle, sometimes it makes people walk away from us. But as we live this out, this is the story of how Jesus does in life. There's this increase in knowledge and it brings a greater sense of worship as we get to know Jesus better. And I love the fact that this disciple did not is never given a name. And I think that's important because it doesn't highlight the disciple, it, it, it highlights Jesus. Because the disciple is comfortable being anonymous as long as Jesus is famous. Can I do one more verse? Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. This is what he's saying. He's saying those who are conscious of their blindness will be healed and receive grace. And those who are content with the sight they have will be blind. Friends, this is why I put so much emphasis on praying for the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you pray for you, I pray for me, that we will be convicted of the Holy Spirit, not for our shame or destruction, but for our repentance. That we pray, Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin Convict me of my apathy towards your kingdom. Convict me of my lethargy and my laziness for kingdom things. Convict me of my pride and arrogance, thinking I have nothing to repent of so that I can repent. I'm not content with the blindness that I have. And in repentance, give me your grace. See, those who are convinced they have nothing to repent of and don't ask that the Holy Spirit convict them so that they can repent will be blind. That's what Jesus is saying. So let's do this. Let's not limit God. The Bible says that Jesus was unable to do certain miracles because of people's unbelief. Let's not limit the work of God. This man had no hope of being healed. He didn't even have a request of Jesus. There are times when you suffer so long that your suffering becomes your identity. It doesn't have to be that way all the time. Perhaps God will work. This man had no expectation of what God would do. He just was willing to receive the grace God had to give. And I want to tell you that perhaps God will work in your life. But let me encourage you with this. Start like the blind man. Start practicing what I call preemptive obedience. Preemptive obedience. When you say on the front end, God, however you direct me, I'm going to obey. I, I, I don't need to know why. I do, you don't need to explain anything to me. I'm just going to tell you, God, on the front end, however you direct me, I'm going to obey. And then you tell him, I'm willing to sit in this suffering. It means I come closer to you. And I'm willing to sit in this suffering. It means other people come closer to you. I'm willing to live with the reality that your strength is made perfect in my weakness. I'm willing to live in the reality that your grace is sufficient even in my suffering. I'm willing to sit here in the suffering. It means I or others come closer to you. And then ask that the Holy Spirit convict you of what you need to repent of. Say, Holy Spirit, I give you permission. Convict me. Not to my shame or destruction, but so that I will repent. And then tell him, Father, as I repent, give me all that your grace will allow me. 
I want it all. You ready? Why don't you pray with me? Father, there are some here in response to your word and the prompting of your spirit who will say to you right now, however you direct, I'll obey. Hear their hearts. Friends, I encourage you in this moment to say that thing to God. God, however you direct me, I'm going to obey. You don't have to give me any forewarning. You don't have to tell me why or what. Just however you direct me, I'm going to obey. You have my preemptive obedience on the front end. And then tell him, but Father, I'm willing to sit in this suffering. If it's going to bring me closer to you, so be it. If it's going to bring for those in my life and my huddle closer to you, so be it. I don't want it, but I'll accept it. I'm going to choose to live with the reality that your strength is made is perfect in my weakness. And I believe that your grace will be sufficient. Tell him, say, Father, convict me. Holy Spirit, convict me of my sin, of my arrogance, of the grudges that I still hold, of the people I've not forgiven yet of my apathy towards your kingdom, my arrogance, my laziness and lethargy for the excuses I give you to not give and to serve. Forgive me of my complacency, of how common I am. I am not content with my blindness, fathers. So convict me. I repent. And then tell him, Father, in my repentance, give me all that your grace will allow. I want it all. I don't want to stay blind. I want all that your grace will allow. Give me all that your grace will allow. Turn graves into gardens. Give me all that your grace will allow. Part waters for me. Give me all that your grace will allow. Turn dry bones into armies. Give me all that your grace will allow. Take away my shame. Take away my body. Give me all that your grace will allow. I repent, but give me all that your grace will allow. Father, I love you, and I thank you for this church. I thank you that we get to open up your word. Thank you for how you speak to us. Convict us not for our destruction or shame, but convict us for our repentance. And in our repentance, give us all that your grace will allow. In your name I pray, amen. I love you. No mind has has conceived, no ear has heard, no eye has seen what God has planned for those who love him. All things together, You're good in his kingdom, right? Let's sing.